I just want to echo that men are doing such an amazing job of, of leading us in worship. Of, and I hope you realize how much, they, how much work they put into it and, uh, and thought and prayer. Uh, that you, thank you so much, guys. You are doing a marvelous job. Uh, as you open up your scriptures to Matthew chapter 13, I encourage you to do that. I, uh, before we get started... I want to make an apology. Where is Henry? Henry is downstairs. Well, Henry, I wish I could see you eye to eye. Um, I want to apologize for my sharpness this morning. He uh, came out, I came out, and he asked me to pull my mask down over my chin, and I looked at him and I said, no. And the Lord's been... On my conscience since then, so I'm sorry for how I I responded to you, Henry. Please forgive me. I'm glad that we all have the gospel to fall back on. We all need Jesus. So I hope you're at Matthew 13. We're going to be looking at this uh, chapter in two, for two, in two weeks, two halves. On the morning of April 14th, 1935, it was a regular morning. Going along, people were hanging their clothes, eating breakfast, beginning to farm in the panhandle of Oklahoma. And as the day wore on, the temperatures began to drop and the wind began to pick up. And if you know anything about that era of our country, the Dust Bowl, a huge dust storm was formed. Actually, the biggest dust storm that North America has, has ever encountered formed that day. It was hundreds of miles long. It was over two miles high. And it made its way from, through the panhandle of Oklahoma down through Texas. With winds over 40 miles an hour and it is estimated that that sandstorm held up in the air over 300 million tons of topsoil. It was so immense that people could see it coming from miles around. And people fled into their barns, they fled into their cars, they fled into their houses and hid underneath their beds. But there was no escaping this sandstorm. It permeated everything. It covered everything. It was so powerful, so immense, so gargantuan that the, the topsoil actually made its way up into the atmosphere and, and it, it made its way all the way to the east coast where a thin coat of dust covered Washington, D.C. and New York City. Back in chapter 3, when Jesus comes on the scene, he comes in the first words he says. Do you remember what he says? The first words out of his mouth. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Most thought that the kingdom of God, when he said that, was going to come like this sandstorm. Obvious, powerful, immense, permeating everything affecting everybody. In fact, that's what the disciples believed. If you, if you follow the trajectory of the disciples' thought and their questioning, even up until his ascension, Jesus has died, been buried, and raised again, and he's there on that mount in Acts 1 at the ascension, and you know what they ask him? Now, Lord? Is it now that you're going to bring your kingdom? Now is the sandstorm going to come? They were still looking for the Romans to be overthrown, justice to be brought, Israel to be repositioned, the wicked judged, the righteous rewarded. They were still waiting for this sandstorm. And perhaps you've been listening to this series in Matthew and thinking a little bit like the disciples. Okay, he's talking about the kingdom. He's teaching about the kingdom. 
But where's the kingdom? Where is it? If God's kingdom is really here, where? Where's the evidence? Where's the power? Where's the fulfillment of the Lord's Prayer? We pray the Lord's Prayer once a month here. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where is that kingdom? Are you questioning that? Are you asking those questions? Because Matthew's gospel is all about the kingdom. Well, today, Jesus wants to comfort and maybe temper, temper and maybe even correct our view of God's kingdom here and now. Just as he did those crowds 2,000 years ago. Look with me at Matthew 13. God's word says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell along the ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, and they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced a grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, To you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, In their case, the prophecy Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull, and their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, or hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. This is what is sown along the path. As for what is sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while, and then tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word. Immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case hundredfold, another sixty and another thirty. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sold weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So his his servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you uproot the wheat along with them. Let both grow until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. 
It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the righteous will shine like the sun of the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who searches in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. That's the reading of God's word. This is one of five main teachings in the book of Matthew. You have them in clumps. We covered one in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. We covered another one in chapter 10 when he teaches his disciples before sending them out. There's also another large clump of parabolic teachings in chapters 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. And then he teaches on the coming, his second coming in chapters 23 and 24. But here in chapter 13, we see he's teaching on the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? He wants people to know about the kingdom of God right now, what it's like. And he uses parables for the first time in Matthew to do it. He uses parables for several reasons. One is that they were an incredibly engaging teaching method. As you can understand, the, these people were, were hearing stories of, of the kingdom uh, in things that they can understand. He's teaching the crowds. He also taught in parables to fulfill uh, messianic fulfillment, messianic prophecy, as we see here in, in verses 34 and 35. The, the Messiah was to come and he was to teach in this form. So he is, again, stepping forth as the, the, the one who is long awaited. But there's a third purpose that Jesus teaches in parables, and we see that in, their, in the disciples' question in verse 10. They ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? Why parables? Why not just tell them plainly? Well, parables are intended to both reveal and conceal. That's the purpose of his teaching in parables. Michael Green puts it this way, there's a law of spiritual atrophy at work here. 
Just as in physical atrophy, if you don't work something, it withers, it gets weakened. If you're lazy, muscles don't grow. So spiritually too, parables reveal truth to those who are hungry. Parables reveal truth to those who are hungry for truth. And it conceals them. It conceals those truths to those who are lazy or apathetic or prejudiced or blind or or indifferent. Parables take work to understand. You can also think of it spiritually or theologically rather, like R.C. Sproul does. Parables feed the elect and they starve the unelect. He puts it like this. Those who have been given new hearts so they are able to understand the things of God are then given further instruction. But to those who have not received the ability to understand, they are denied this divine truth. These latter people have fully functioning eyes and ears, he writes, but they cannot understand the underlying meaning of the parable. That's why if you look at verse 11, Jesus says, the knowledge of the secret of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. He who has ears, let him hear. So do we have ears to hear today the secrets of the kingdom of God this side of his second coming? This morning, Jesus reveals to those who have ears for unexpected and perhaps inconvenient truths about the kingdom of God right now. And we're going to look at this, like I said before, over the next two weeks. So the first unexpected truth that Jesus puts forth about the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is smaller than it seems. The kingdom of God is smaller than it appears. According to a recent survey, there's 500 million Buddhists in the world, 1.1 million billion rather Hindus, 1.2 billion claim to be non-religious, 1.9 billion Muslims, and 2.3 billion Christians. 2.3 billion people claim to be Christians. A third of the earth claims to be Christian. But according to Jesus here, in this first parable of the sower, that might be a little skewed. That, that number of 2.3 billion might not actually all be Christians, but actually be much smaller. Look with me at verses 3 through 9, the parable of the sower. He went out into the field and he sowed seeds and it fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up. But since they had no depth of soil, when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell along good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold. Jesus goes on to explain this parable in verses 18 through 23. The seed is the word of God, the gospel preached. The soil is the heart of the hearer. And the growth of the seed represents the various reactions to the gospel. Some are so blind, so hardened of heart, so indifferent maybe, so apathetic towards the gospel, that, the, that it actually never takes root in their heart. It, it hits that hard path and the seed just sits right on top. And Satan is an opportunist. I'm sure if you talk to the Palmeters afterwards, they will, they will tell you, as I'm going to tell you, Satan is an opportunist. He's always there, ready to take that seed away. I'm sure they could tell you stories of that. 
So when Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is discussed, when, when you ask somebody, where are you with God? And that seed is thrown, and it hits that path, and they go, no, nowhere. I had an experience this, this past weekend where I, I, I threw out a, a spirit, possible spiritual conversation with the guys I was with playing golf. They, somebody asked me, uh, what brought you to Maine? And I said, well, actually, God brought me to Maine. And I thought, boy, there, somebody's going to ask me about that. It was shocking to me. They kind of looked at me and went, so are you going to hit that shot over there? (laughs) Nothing. Hard. Seed bounced right off. But there are three other hearers here that look very similar to, to Christians. The seed that germinates, these seeds germinate and start to grow. They actually look like Christians for a time. Then life starts to happen, doesn't it? Life starts to happen. The pressures of life start to happen. The persecutions for your faith start to happen. The world begins to crowd in and say, remember when when you used to do this and how wonderful that was? And they fall away. See, the point Jesus is making here is they all, all three of this final three seeds look authentic for a time. They all pray and read their scriptures for a time. They all go to church and get heavily involved in church, maybe. They all share the gospel. They all talk about Christ. They, they go on mission trips. They look and sound like authentic believers for a while. They're just like Judas Iscariot. Spent three years with the Son of God. He looked like a disciple until he left the table that night to get his 30 pieces of silver. Like Paul's co-worker, Demas, you can read about him in 2 Timothy 4. Traveled with Paul. Missionary. Shared the gospel. Planted churches. Paul tells us in his final letter, some of his final words written, that Demas has left me because he loved the world. How sad. Brothers and sisters, there are legions of these middle two types of seeds. Like Frankie Schaefer, son of Francis Schaefer, grew up at Labrie, sat under Francis Schaefer's teaching for decades, now an atheist. Like Josh Harris, he authored books and pastored churches. Like Marty Sampson of Hillsong, He wrote and sang God-glorifying songs. Like Paul Maxwell, who wrote for Desiring God. All look and sounded like authentic Christians, but now have renounced their faith in Christ. You see, the kingdom is smaller than it seems, brothers and sisters. As any good gardener knows, many seeds pop up through the ground, but not all make it to maturity. That's what Jesus is saying here. Scripture tells us this over and over in various ways, doesn't it? Many are called, but few are chosen. Not all Israel's true Israel. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. He's telling the Corinthian church, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. He goes on to say, do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. 
What's the test? I don't give this book out an awful lot, but I give this book out every once in a while. Mike McKinley wrote a book called Am I Really a Christian? It's a hard book. Maybe something that we should read. I want to read his table of contents. You are not a Christian just because you say that you are. You realize that? A person just can't say, I'm a Christian. You're not a Christian just because you like Jesus. If Jesus is a good guy, if he's a moral teacher, if you kind of like his vibe and his lifestyle and you want to kind of emulate it, but he's a good moral teacher, that's not belief in the Christ I know. You're not a Christian if you enjoy sin. If sin has more of a grip on you than desiring to do the things of God, you're not a Christian if you don't love other people. It's a whole chapter on that. I like what Mark Dever says. He says, if you're a Christian and, and you don't have time in your schedule to go buy a shut-in and pick them up and bring them to church on a Sunday, if, if, you are, or if you're too busy to do that, he says, I, I, don't know, I don't know if there's a category for you. You're not a Christian if you love your stuff more than God. That's directly what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? Your stuff will choke your faith. His final chapter is, you're not a Christian if you do not endure to the end. And I think that's exactly the application that Jesus has for us today in and through this parable. True Christians persevere to the end. They persevere through pressure. They persevere through persecution. They persevere through the valleys. They keep going. Yeah, it's tough. Sometimes, I was just talking to a guy the other day, and I said, sometimes it's so difficult in this life, as Ephesians 6 says, that all I can do is stand. Can't go forward. But I'm going to stand. In fact, there's a whole book in the New Testament written with the major theme of perseverance in the faith. You know what that book is? The book of Hebrews. It's all about that. Because it's written to a, to a group of Jews who are under intense persecution. And God inspired this book to be written to them so that they would hear things like, we must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Don't drift away. Pay careful attention to the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remember what Christ has done for you. He writes things like this. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Brothers and sisters, God has given us this us so that we can persevere because left alone we will not he inspired that book so that they'd hear things like let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful Christ has got you you don't have him he has you There are many indicators of authentic faith, brothers and sisters. Many indicators. But ultimately and finally, there's one. Making it to your dying breath. Proclaiming Christ alone. Through grace alone. Through faith alone. George Whitfield was the passionate and powerful preacher of the Great Awakening. He used to preach to massive crowds numbering thousands. 
And people were greatly affected by his messages and, and thousands came to faith. Thousands and thousands came to faith under his preaching. When Whitfield was asked how many people were saved, do you know what his answer always would be? We'll see in a few years. We'll see in a few years. We'll see if they endure. We'll see if when, when the winds really get hot, if they just are willing to stay with Christ. The kingdom, brothers and sisters, is smaller than it seems. It's an inconvenient truth. But secondly, Jesus wants us to know that the kingdom is obscured until the end. The kingdom is obscured until the end. This is what the lesser known parables of the weeds and the net teach us. These two parables teach us this one principle, that the kingdom is obscured until the end. Again, the disciples expected God's kingdom to be rather obvious, right? Like, a, that, like that Black Sunday. Here it comes. Something you can't miss. Overpowering. All-encompassing. But brothers and sisters, that's, that's what the second coming is going to be like, right? That thinking is true. It's just not for his first advent. It's for his second coming. That's when that sandstorm is going to come. You can find that sandstorm in, in books like the, the Thessalonians, the two first and second Thessalonians and first and second Peter. You can find that sandstorm recapitulated seven times in the book of Revelation. You can read about that coming of the kingdom that will cover everything that will change everything. You can even find it in the Old Testament. For those of you who were reading the, along publicly with us, with your mind engaged, did you catch it? I mean, the first part of Zechariah 9, 9, we all know. We read it every Christmas, right? He's coming gentle and humble on a donkey. Yes, that's his first coming. But did you catch right next to it? Zechariah was inspired to tell us about his second coming with arrows, with lightning, with, with destruction, with power. That's the second coming. And it is coming. But Jesus needs to recalibrate his disciples and us. So he tells us these two very similar parables using two images that were very well known in the ancient civilization. The first one is agricultural. That's what the parable of the weeds is all about, verses 24 through 30, and its interpretation in 36 through 43. There, Jesus says a farmer, who is Christ, we find out, goes and sows good seed, who we find out in the interpretation is, is believers, in his field. And we find out that the field is the world. Now, many people read this and have interpreted this as the parable of the weeds as the church, the weeds and tares within the church. But a closer reading, you see that it's the world. Then the enemy, Satan, comes and sows weeds people and things that look like God's kingdom in that same field, the world. Then some of the servants, who we find out are angels, ask whether they should separate them now. Should they go into the field and separate? And the farmer Christ tells them to wait until the end. Wait until my second coming. And then the wheat will be separated from the weeds and the wheat will not be hurt in this separation as it would be if they were to go out into the fields now. Now, a farmer hearing this would know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He would know exactly that Jesus is talking about the weed called Darnell. Darnell is called the wheat's evil twin. It's evil because it's slightly poisonous. 
And it's the twin of wheat because until the very end when the wheat grain sprouts, until the very end in the whole growing season, darnel and wheat look exactly alike. You cannot look at the field and see the difference. It's always there. It looks exactly like wheat. The parable of the net is telling something, something similar using another common job, and that is fishing. Usually fishermen would take a net about 100 feet long and 10 miles, uh, 10 miles, 10 feet high, and they would put cork along one side, and they would cast it out, sometimes between the shore and a boat, sometimes between two boats. And then what they would do is they would slowly bring the, the, the net together onto the shore and then drag it up. And there they could look at the fish and they would sort out the inedible from the edible, the unclean fish from the clean fish. The point Jesus wants us to draw from both of these parables is that both in the wheat and in the fish, they are hidden from view. The good is hidden from view until the very end. The clean and unclean fish, you can't see as you're drawing up them in the water. You can't see the difference until the very end when you pull it up on shore. The wheat and the darnel, you can't see the difference until at the end when you can then separate them. So the kingdom of God is not just smaller than it seems, but it's hard to see even when you know it's there. And isn't that our experience? Isn't that our experience? It's, the kingdom of God is hard to see. I think that this application, there's two applications here. One for the non-believer and one for the believer. For the unbeliever, there's this application. God is gracious until the end. God is gracious until the end. In 1985, a fire broke out in the stands of a soccer uh, game in England. On close examination of that footage, you can see that fans do not immediately react to the fire that is starting over in the corner. As it's growing, they're watching the fire and watching the game. They're not leaving. They're watching the fire. They're watching the game. They're not leaving. Fifty-five people died because they wanted to watch the game. Similar experience in Kentucky at the Beverly Hills Supper Club. A fire broke out. And when forensics investigators went in to... to investigate the fire, they've confirmed that many victims continued to eat their fine meal while the smoke started filtering in. Even though the exit was right there, 177 people died. I tell these two tragic stories to show that delay, when you've been informed of a life-threatening event is tragic. God's word is telling us here in these two parables that a fire has broken out. The end of the world is coming. God's word said the end of the world is coming. All that entertains us here all, all that, the, the comfort that we have here that money can bring. All the pleasure that we can, that this world can give us is coming to an end. There's going to be an end to it. Maybe not tomorrow, but maybe. Maybe not next month, but maybe. 
months, maybe not in a couple years, but maybe it's coming to an end. Peter said himself that the end will come like a thief in the night. Jesus himself, when asked, said, I do not know the hour or the time. It's coming. The fire has broken out. You are in danger if you don't know the Lord. There will be a sorting. There will be a separation. And those who trust in Jesus says we put in cisterns, his barn, read paradise, heaven. And those who have been pointed to the exit and continue to eat, who see the fire and continue to watch the game, at some point, will be consumed. That's the hard truth. At some point, there will be a binding and a throwing into the furnace. There will be a sorting and thrown upon the seashore to die. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it doesn't bring me any pleasure to say this. There is a place called hell. That's what Jesus is talking about here. But God is merciful and gracious, loving, kind, patient, not wanting anyone to perish, it says in 2 Timothy 3. And so as you sit unaware, watching the game and eating your fine food, he not only warns you, but he points you to the exit. He points you to the exit. To a way to be saved from the coming fire that you've been made aware of. He points you to his son, Jesus Christ, and says, there is the exit Jesus is the exit. He's the way out. He's the one who left paradise in order to offer you a way out. And he did that, brother and sister, by dying on a cross for you, for substituting himself for your sin on the cross. You see, sin does demand a penalty, and the penalty... God's word said is death. And so Jesus went to that cross and he absorbed the wrath of God for your sin. He was sorted and thrown away, not you. He was bound and thrown into the fire, not you. He hung there on the cross gnashing his teeth, not you. He died the death that you and I deserve, earned, so that we could have life eternal. That's the exit. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's the exit. And if you believe that the end is coming, if you believe that you cannot save yourself, if you believe and run to Jesus, you will be saved. That is the God that we serve that is merciful and gracious and loving and patient. And that's the, God, that's the God we find in these two parables. But there's a lesson for the believer today in these two parables. And the lesson for the believer in these two parables is this. Don't get discouraged. Even though it's small, even though the kingdom is obscured and hidden, and hard to see, don't get discouraged. 
Sure, the wheat is hidden by the darnel. The kingdom is obscured right now. To anyone who listens for two nights at the, at the news knows that the kingdom of God is hidden right now. I'll even name that tune and say, if you do it in one night, you will know that the kingdom of God is hidden. With gender being questioned and erased in our culture, with marriage becoming passe, with gay marriage becoming normalized, with genocide of abortion enshrined in our laws, with critical race theory becoming the predominant lens through which we see people. How crazy is that? With our speech being increasingly monitored and scrutinized, with all the moral boundaries being muddied, with, the, with politics becoming God, one could be tempted to cry out, where is God's kingdom? It's not here. Are you kidding? But Jesus is saying here, it's obscure, but it's there. If you look, if you have eyes to see, if you have ears to listen, the kingdom of God is there. Next week, we're going to look at two more parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. This is the, what Jesus is saying here. It's here. It's slow, but it's deep. For those who have eyes to see. Pastor Mark Buchanan visited Africa, the Maasai Mara Preserve, perhaps the biggest preserve on earth, wildlife preserve. He went twice, and he had two different guides each time he went on safari. And he writes that two trips couldn't have been more different. Same preserve, two totally different trips. He says the first guide, Stephen, made the trip a thing of joy and wonder and endless surprise. The second guide, William, almost ruined the trip for him completely. The difference was one thing. Stephen paid attention. William didn't. Stephen knew what to look for. William didn't. Stephen was a Maasai man in his early 20s and he grew up a few miles from the preserve. He said that he would stop the car and gaze into the, different, into the distance about a kilometer away. Pastor Buchanan would look, see nothing. Then Stephen would slowly drive forward and there in the acacia grass, the, there would, they would see a cheetah feeding or a lion sleeping, or a rhino and, and her baby. He said the second guide, William, was a coma man in his mid-fifties who grew up in Nairobi. He said he spent most of his time chatting on the CB with his friends. And he just followed the crowd. Wherever there were a bunch of, bunch of, uh, of cars, he would drive over there and they would watch with the swarm of other people the same thing. He said one time they were traveling alone on the, on the road and there was a huge herd of elephants just off to the side of the road and William was on a CB and went right past it. Jesus tells us throughout Matthew's gospel the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God might be smaller than it seems. It might be a little obscured but if you know what you're looking for, you can see the kingdom of God. If you're looking. So I just want to offer a couple close looks in closing. If you look closely at our church, you see the kingdom of God. Our residence program in Jacob Hansen going out and revitalizing or planting another church. That's the kingdom of God. If you, if you look at 
the Gospel Alliance. If you care to come to a Gospel Alliance conference, you will see pastors from the back hills of western Maine to the county all coming and sharing what God is doing in Maine. If you look at Bill Johnson's church down in Pittsfield that we pray for here, he's been there 30 years plus. He's planted four churches out of that church. Praise God. Every once a month on Monday night, 30 guys come and sit in his basement and he teaches them from all over Maine about the word of God. And he encourages them to plant and revitalize churches. If you look at Nets in Vermont, who we partnered with, they planted over a dozen gospel preaching, Christ-loving churches throughout New England. Praise God. If you look at, just nationally, look at the Gospel Coalition or Together for the Gospel. If you want to see the kingdom, if you want to experience the kingdom, go to one of their conferences and see and witness that in America there are these churches, hundreds and thousands of these churches that are preaching the gospel that you just heard. The church in China is many-fold bigger than the church in America. And they can't even gather legally. Just stepping back one more. Jesus, who is teaching his disciples here in a little obscure backwater land, and those 12 disciples went out, and then it Exponentially, exponentially, exponentially. And we have churches and believers throughout the whole world. If you have eyes to see, if you look closely, you'll see that the kingdom, yes, it's smaller than it seems. Yes, it's obscure. It's obscured. Where is it, Lord? But if you look closely, you'll see that God's kingdom is here. It's growing slowly, but it's growing deeply. Come back next week and hear about that slow and deep growth of God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your kingdom and for how you have been growing it and caring for it and nurturing it all these long years. Lord God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear about your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.